Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all today. As we turn our attention to the Word of God, we're going to be looking in first, or sorry, Second Kings chapter nine. Second Kings chapter nine, and in just a few moments, we'll look at the first ten verses here in Second Kings chapter nine, in a sermon that I've titled "Training Day." Second Kings chapter nine, verses one through ten. Second Kings chapter nine. Verses 1 through 10. The day eventually comes when something we've been preparing for is upon us. We've put in all the practice mentally, physically, we think we're prepared, and now it is time for where the rubber meets the road. The time comes for everything we've learned to be put into practice. We've all experienced this in some way. Maybe we even know that there is a day like this approaching. We're in the middle of the preparation. It can be a little nerve-wracking as you stop and think about what it's going to be like doing everything that you've been training and preparing for for the first time. You may even go through a series of questions in your mind where maybe you're second-guessing everything. Are you really ready for this day? Wondering if you're ready for all that is going to happen. Wondering if you've prepared enough. But you also know that every part of your training was leading up to this point. It was always going to come to this day. And even if you're a little nervous, there's still hopefully a little level of excitement coupled with that. I remember the first message that I preached in Bible school. And I remember how nervous I was going into it. I remember the the, the first passage that I was preaching on. I was nervous, even though I knew that this was God had called me to do. And I was preaching from Matthew chapter 5 and highlighting verse number 16, which states, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And I knew that verse like the back of my hand, and I felt like I was ready going into it. And I preached that first message on the importance of being a light in a dark world, standing for Christ and proclaiming the message of the gospel far and wide. I was given several weeks to prepare this message before it was time for me to preach it, and I was told that I would have, I would have to preach for five minutes. Some of you think this would be wonderful if I only preached for five minutes. But I remember at the time thinking, how in the world am I going to fill five minutes? I felt like I could get my whole message across in about 30 seconds. And what was I going to say for the additional four and a half minutes? And as I think back on it now, it's funny because now the perspective would be, this is going to be a struggle to try and summarize an entire message into five minutes. But that's not what they were asking me to do. They weren't asking me to summarize a 45-minute message into five minutes. They were telling us and preparing us to preach a five-minute message. And every message we preached in Bible school, it wasn't just preached in front of your peers, but it was also recorded. So if it wasn't bad enough that I have to preach in front of my peers and receive their constructive criticism, I had to then go back and watch the video of myself preaching, and I had to critique myself. It was rough, and I'm being gentle. I always feel like my voice sounds different on a recording, and the more I watched this video of myself preaching for the first time, the more I got annoyed. I, I left my hand in my pocket the entire time I was preaching, for five minutes. I, for, you know, it, if I'm just preaching like this, 
What's the impression that you're going to get? I don't care, right? The entire five minutes, which doesn't seem like a long time, but felt like it was an eternity while I was watching this video, my left hand was in my pocket. The entire time. And this is rule number one. They tell you, do not do this. Whatever you do, when you stand up there and deliver your first message, the one thing just don't do is put your hand in your pocket. I get up there, the first thing I do is put my hand in my pocket. I knew I wasn't supposed to do it. I knew this is what they told me not to do, and that's what I did. And I didn't realize I was doing it until I was watching it on the video. I'm thinking, are you kidding me? And I'm yelling at myself as I'm watching, get your hand in your pocket, get your hand in your pocket. And I never did. For five minutes, it was in my pocket. And then... My other hand, I was making these weird gestures the entire time. I don't mean, not like inappropriate stuff or anything like that. But my hand was, seemed to be just stuck in this claw position the entire time. Almost like I fell asleep gripping a baseball and then I just couldn't get my fingers to get unlocked. And the, the entire message, I, w- I was doing that. And then there was what I was wearing. I was, I was wearing a jacket, a shirt and tie but nothing matched. <laughs> I looked like one of those kids whose parents allowed them to go into their room and dress themselves for the first time. And the kid comes out wearing like, you know, Grinch-styled pajama pants, a Hawaiian t-shirt, um, a sweater vest over the shirt, a fanny pack around his waist, cowboy boots, and then a visor on his head. And as I watched the video of my first sermon, that's what I felt I looked like. I'm thinking, what in the world is, was I thinking? And now, if that's how bad I felt I looked, you can only imagine how bad I felt I sounded. I didn't preach anything heretical, but it was rough. And the crazy thing is that I would prepared for this. It wasn't as if, you know, they just, you know, handpicked me out of a crowd when no one was ready and said, all right, you up there, come up here and preach. And I was caught off guard. I prepared for this. I thought I presented myself well. I thought in the moment that I delivered a solid message until I watched the video. And thankfully, I've learned a thing or two from those days. I don't bother watching the video anymore. (laughs) Now, the, the passage before us this morning, it records a training day in the life of a young prophet, a young servant of the prophet Elisha. We never get his name but it's believed that this young man was one of the students of the prophet of Elisha from the school of the prophets that had been probably started under the ministry of the prophet Elijah. Without a doubt, this young man would have been under the teaching of the prophet Elisha for some time now. Several years have probably gone by, and as he would be dispatched here in this passage for a very particular task. And Elisha's recorded ministry is coming to an end. We've talked about a lot thus far looking at his ministry and it's now approaching the end. Even though he'd still be alive for a number of years following this event in this passage, nonetheless, what we see him doing here is preparing and training the next generation. He takes this young prophet basically out of the classroom and he takes the training that he gained in the classroom and now he's going to give him some real life training. Training that you can't get in a classroom. And he's training him in the everyday tasks of a prophet. Now this was similar to what the prophet Elijah did with Elisha. God had called Elijah to go and anoint the prophet Elisha, or before he was a prophet, just Elisha. And he uses the words this, he says, anoint him as prophet in thy room. And so Elijah went and anointed Elisha, and then he began preparing and training him for ministry. And in that case... It was more than just training Elisha to become his successor. 
because Elisha was to take Elijah's place as his accredited representative. And this was seen in the picture of Elijah when he cast his mantle upon Elisha, signifying that there was going to be a very close identification and connection between these two individuals. Uh, even though Elijah would be miraculously taken up to heaven in, in 2 Kings chapter 2, a double portion of his spirit would be upon the prophet Elisha. And coincidentally, as we've looked throughout the life and ministry of the prophet Elisha, he actually ended up doing a lot more than the prophet Elijah did with regards to the number of miracles that God wrought through him. And so you see that double portion of the spirit of Elijah coming upon Elisha. And so Elijah poured into Elisha a wealth of wisdom and knowledge, and then God gave him that double portion of Elijah's spirit, which fully equipped Elisha for the work of the Lord that he was doing. And now it's his turn to train and take one of these young prophets out of the classroom and put him in the field. Now, as we spent some time looking at the life and ministry of the prophet Elisha, we've seen Elisha minister to the sons of the prophets in, in several different ways. Uh, we've seen him for sure preparing them for ministry. But on one occasion, if you remember, Elisha was approached by a widow who, whose husband was one of the sons of the prophets. And we don't know the, the circumstances upon which he had died, but he had died nonetheless. And, and there is this widow who had come to him, the prophet Elisha, in a very desperate situation because she has a debt that needs to be paid off. And the creditor, who is believed to be the king, is threatening to take her two sons to serve as bond servants to pay off the debt. And so naturally this mother comes to Elisha and says, listen, I am you know, the widow of one of the sons of the prophets that you have trained and ministered with. Would you help me out? And of course he helps her out and they are able to uh, get all sorts of oil and, and then they're able to, to sell it to pay off the debt that they had. Uh, we then read about another occasion where the prophet Elisha delivered a whole company of the sons of the prophets from being poisoned as they were all about to eat some poisonous stew that had been made, not realizing that it was going to kill them. And then he miraculously retrieved the head of a borrowed axe that had fallen into the water. So we get glimpses here and there of Elisha's interactions with the sons of the prophet. And in each of these instances, we see the sons of the prophets having great and tremendous respect for Elisha and kind of signifying the close relationship that they had to, as student to teacher, Elisha being the teacher there. And based on uh, what we've seen thus far, uh, there were several of these schools of the prophets. The Bible kind of mentions in several cities where these schools may have been, one in Gilgal, one in Bethel, and a third in Jericho at the very least. And all of this was important as we consider our passage here this morning in 2 Kings chapter 9. Elisha is constantly seen pouring into these young students, into these sons of the prophets, because he knew just how important the ministry was especially considering the time that he was living where the prophets of God were being persecuted on a regular basis. Many of them were being killed and the word of God was trying to be silenced by almost everyone. Those who were faithful to God were in the minority there in Israel. Only evil kings were sitting upon the thrones in the northern kingdom of Israel and this is what Elisha was dealing with day in and day out. He was despised, he was rejected nearly everywhere that he went, even if what he had to say and do directly benefited the ones that he was sent to go and minister to. For the most part, they wanted nothing to do with him. Now notice what we see in the first three verses here in 2 Kings chapter 9, as we see what Elisha instructs this young prophet to do. Look at verses 1, 2, and 3 here in 2 Kings chapter 9. 
It says, And Elisha the prophet called one of the children of the prophets and said unto him, Gird up thy loins and take this box of oil in thine hand and go to Ramoth-Gilead. And when thou comest thither, look out there Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, and go in and make him arise up from among his brethren and carry him to an inner chamber. Then take the box of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus saith the Lord, I have anointed thee king over Israel. Then open the door and flee and tarry not. Now the rest of the passage will not deal directly with the prophet Elisha. In fact, this is the only mention that we have of him. It's in verse number one and he's speaking in verses two and three to this young prophet, telling him what to do, where to go and, and, who, to speak, and who to speak to. So we don't have any other mention about Elisha in the rest of the passage. However, it's connected with Elisha nearly the same way that Elisha was connected with the prophet Elijah. So there's kind of a joint ministry that is going, going on here. This young prophet was seen here acting as an ambassador to the prophet Elisha. And thus we attribute what was done in this passage as an extension of the ministry of Elisha. These verses are incredibly significant because the initial instruction to do what was repeated by Elisha here to his young servant was first made by God to the prophet Elijah all the way back in 1 Kings chapter 19. So hold your place here in 2 Kings chapter 9 and turn back with me to 1 Kings chapter number 19. 1 Kings 19, and I'm going to read for you verses 15 and 16. So this is before Elisha is, is, even, uh, is, is even taken up as a prophet. Uh, this is just before he is anointed. And uh, before he begins the ministry where he's following Elijah, this is after Elijah has had this incredible encounter upon Mount Carmel. He flees because Ahab uh, goes to Jezebel and tells Jezebel that, that uh, Elijah has killed the 450 prophets of Baal. And so Jezebel sends a promise to Elijah saying, at this time tomorrow, you're going to be as one of them. You're going to be dead as a doornail. And so he hears that message and he runs about 250 miles away into a wilderness where ironically he runs away to save his life, but then he gets into the wilderness and asks God to take away his life. So go figure the rationale there. But God then feeds him on two occasions, gives him some rest, sends him another several, several miles away. And 40 days journey, he travels to a place called Mount Horeb, where God speaks to him in a still small voice. And he tells him to do three things. And notice what it says here in verses 15 and 16 in chapter 19 of 1 Kings. 1 Kings 19, verses 15 and 16. So again, God is speaking to the prophet Elijah. It says, And the Lord said unto him, Go, return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when thou comest, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shall thou anoint to be king over Israel, which is what is seen happen in our passage here this morning in 2 Kings chapter 9. But God commanded it way back in 1 Kings chapter 19. And then after he's to anoint, uh, it says, uh, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, Abel Mehalah shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. So way back then, God had instructed the prophet Elijah to go and first anoint Hazael to be king over Syria and then to anoint Jehu to be king over Israel. Now during those days, Ahab was king over Israel. During the days here in 2 Kings chapter 9, Jehoram is king over Israel. There's a sitting person on the throne in Israel. And yet God in both instances is commanding that someone else 
be anointed king. So you might be thinking, why didn't Elijah do this? He was the one who was first instructed to go and do this back in 1 Kings chapter 19. Uh, and you also might be thinking, what took so long for this to be done? Because it obviously wasn't done in Elijah's day, and now we're getting to the end of Elisha's ministry, and now we're finally seeing it happen. So what took so long, and why didn't, God do, why didn't Elijah do it in the first place? And the answer is actually quite simple. Because not that long after God gave that command to Elijah back in 1 Kings chapter 19, God would call for the command to be delayed. God was calling for Jehu to be anointed as king over Israel for the purpose of using this man Jehu as his instrument of judgment against the wicked king Ahab, who was king during Elijah's day in 1 Kings chapter 19. And when God sent Elijah to go and deliver the message of doom to King Ahab, that he is going to be killed for, his, um, for, his, for all of the wickedness that he had done, not just himself, but for the entire nation of Israel, Ahab was so deeply distressed as he learned that not only was he going to die, but all of his posterity was going to be killed as well. So again, hold your place here in 2 Kings chapter uh, chapter 9 and turn and look, at, look with me at 1 Kings chapter 21 and notice how Ahab responds to this horrible message and prophecy of doom, not just to him, but for his entire posterity. 1 Kings 21, and I'm going to read verses 27 down to verse 29. So Elijah confronts Ahab and tells him that he is going to die as well as all of his sons. And it says in verse 27 of 1 Kings chapter 21, it says, And it came to pass when Ahab heard those words, that he rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went softly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, seest, how, seest thou how Ahab humbleth himself before me? Because he humbleth himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days, but in his son's days will I bring the evil upon his house. So God is telling him, First, he told them in chapter 19, go and do this. Anoint Jehu to be king over Israel. And now two chapters later, after he pronounces the message of doom to Ahab, he says, we're going to delay this. It's not that we're going to throw it out entirely. We're just going to delay when it's going to be fulfilled. So he was delaying the punishment that he was going to bring upon the house of Ahab. Thus, anointing of Jehu was postponed because Jehu was going to be the instrument by which God was going to bring judgment upon the house of Ahab. So he says, if we're going to wait, that means we also got to wait for Jehu. So since the time of anointing Jehu had not come during the ministry of the prophet Elijah, Elijah transferred that command that was first given to him in chapter 19 that was reaffirmed in chapter 21, but that it was going to be delayed. It was transferred to Elisha to be fulfilled in his day. But now we have another problem because it's not Elisha who is going forth to anoint Jehu to be king, but rather a young prophet who is first time out in the field having his training day. Why didn't Elisha do this himself? Why was he sending someone else to do this task that clearly would have been transferred to him? Why trust another person to do this? Now, some have suggested that by this time in the prophet Elisha's ministry, it was too risky for him to appear out in public. Therefore, he was sending a representative to do what he couldn't risk to do under the present circumstances. 
How many of you think that that's a logical suggestion or conclusion? That he was too afraid to be out in public based on the time frame of his life and the oppression that he was seeing. How many of you think that Elisha was afraid? Okay, this is one of those occasions where I actually want you to speak. Could you at least shake your head no or shake your head yes, even if you're afraid to say something? How many of you think that he was afraid to go out in public? No. Okay, I asked how many of you think he was afraid, and you should have said, I do, but you said no. Okay, so you don't think he was afraid, is what you're saying. Okay, thank you. I would agree with that. I don't think he was afraid. Based on the body of work that we've seen with the prophet Elijah, what would he have to be afraid of? I can think of several instances where, under normal circumstances, had he not been a prophet, had he not been in so close connection with God, he would have been afraid, he should have been afraid, but he wasn't. Because he was a prophet of God and he did follow God's advice and saw God's hand deliver in so many awesome ways. I mean, everything that we've seen of, of him has been incredible. Why else, if that was the case, if he was truly afraid of his own life and being caught in the public eye, why send someone else? Why put someone else in danger? What kind of man would this be if he's afraid of being caught in the public eye because of the threat that may come upon him? And he said, you know what? I'm going to put someone else in harm's way. That seems very fair. That seems really nice of him to do. Young sir, come out of the classroom and let's put you right on the front line of the fire. Let's put you right on the battlefield. You've never been a day in battle, but we're going to put you right up on the front line. Good luck. No, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. This is Elisha. This is the same man who on several occasions boldly confronted the king, King Jehoram, and was not afraid to tell the king what to do. You don't do this. You don't do this without understanding that you're putting your own life in your hands because the king can snap his fingers and have you killed. This is the same man who was not afraid to offend the mighty Naaman. Do you all remember Naaman? Captain of the host of the armies of Syria? Man is a leper. He comes all the way to Israel. He comes to Samaria. He comes to the front door of Elisha. And what does Elisha do? He doesn't even bother coming out of the house. He sends a messenger out to tell him, Naaman, what to do. And Naaman's all offended, thinking, I've come all this way. The man can't even come and see me. Does he not know who I am? I've got soldiers. I've got men with me that can kill him. And Elisha says, I don't even care. You're going to do what my servant tells you to do. He doesn't care about offending this guy. And this is the same Elisha who was not afraid when King Jehoram swore to have him killed. He even sends an executioner to the house where Elisha is as he's just sitting there talking with the elders. And then he knows that this man is coming to kill him. He doesn't run and hide. He doesn't tell the elders, listen, don't tell them that I'm here. I'm going to escape out the back door. Give me a head start. He calmly stays there. This is the same Elijah who wasn't afraid when a whole army of Syrians came and found his house, surrounded him, and his young prophet comes out front the, the, the next morning and sees this whole host of Syrians out there, runs inside, wakes up Elijah, says, we're doomed. And Elijah says, relax, guy. There's another army out there that is greater in number and more powerful than the army of the Syrians that you see. And he prayed and God opened up the young, the young man's eyes and the young man went outside and he saw, behold, that the mountain, it says, was full of horses and chariots. An army so magnificent that God was going to make sure that he was not going to be harmed. This is the same Elisha that then prayed and struck that entire army of Syrians with blindness. Every situation that came his way, he faced it head on 
And now I'm supposed to believe that he was too afraid to go out in public because he might lose his life? This is ridiculous. How some people come up with these theories is just beyond me. What does Proverbs 28 verse 1 tell us? Can anyone tell me? <clears throat> this is a test. Proverbs 28 verse 1. Memory verse for February. We're still in this month. Who can tell me what Proverbs 28 1 says? Anyone? Anyone? No one? Oh, this is bad. This is bad. The wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are what? Thank you. You barely redeemed yourselves. The righteous are as bold as a lion. The wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Elisha, this man was not one to cower in the face of danger. Neither was he inclined to send someone else to face danger that was meant for him. Now the Bible may not tell us exactly why he sent this young man for this task. But I believe he did this to prepare this young man. He was training him for what God would have this man doing going forward. I believe Elisha sensed that his time was coming to an end. Even if he would go on to live many years after this, I believe he sensed that God was using him to pave the way for other prophets to now come into the public service. And therefore, Elisha would prepare and train the prophets for that service for God. Just think of what a training day this must have been for this young man. This was no ordinary task that he was being called to do. Anointing the next king is a tremendous responsibility and such an incredible honor. So it says a lot about this young man that he's the one that's been chosen for this task. The fact that Elisha calls upon this young prophet to do this, again, it speaks of his close relationship that he had with each of these young men. We may not see a, a whole lot mentioned about Elisha's teaching ministry to these young prophets, but just because it wasn't mentioned doesn't mean it didn't happen. What we see Elisha doing here is incredibly significant because there comes a day when every minister of the gospel must do the same. Clearly, Elisha has been promoting the training of the young men for ministry. Now, every one of us are called into the ministry. We may be called to different fields, to minister to different, in different capacities, but we're called to minister for the Lord nonetheless. What are we doing to pour into the hearts and minds of the people that God has placed around us? Are we actively working on setting the right example for those who are watching us, for those who have been entrusted under our care? Are we training them? Are we equipping them? Are we educating them? Are we causing them to grow into a deeper relationship with the Lord if they're saved? If they're not saved, are we actively promoting the gospel and declaring unto them their need to believe on Jesus Christ in order to have salvation, to have the promise and guarantee of heaven? None of us are going to be around forever which is why we need to be investing time and effort into the next generation. We should be training them. We should be equipping them for the responsibilities for what we're unable to do when we're older and unfit to do it. This is the same principle that the Apostle Paul instructed a young pastor in Timothy to do in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 2. This is what he said. 
Again, this is, this is the, getting into the mindset. He's trying to instill within a young pastor how to be thinking long-term. 1 Timothy 2, 2, he says, And the things which thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also. You see, this is what he's telling them to do. You can't do everything yourself. Train, equip, prepare the next generation. Those who are, who are capable right now, delegate. Get them ready. Get them prepared. Get them active in ministry. And then have them teach others also so that we can have a whole army of people ready to just jump in when it calls for it. This is what the prophet Elisha was doing when he's sending this young man, this young prophet, out on this important task, this training day of his, was becoming this all-important day. And notice again what he instructs him to do in the first two verses here is 2 Kings chapter 9. Again, and Elisha the prophet called one of the children of the prophets and said unto him, Gird up thy loins and take this box of oil in thine hand and go to Ramoth Gilead. And when thou comest thither, look out there Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, and go in and make him arise up from among his brethren and carry him to an inner chamber. Then take the box of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus saith the Lord, I have anointed thee king over Israel. Then open the door and flee and tarry not. And we, we kind of skip over the, uh, these words without really thinking about the power that's being evidenced by the prophet. He tells the young man exactly where he is going to find Jehu. Elisha knew where Jehu would be found. He knew that Jehu would not be alone. He knew the precise people that would be with him. He even knew that he would be seated. Now we quickly read over the words without really considering how incredible it was that Elisha knew these specific details. I mean, if he got one of these right, we think, man, that was lucky guess. But he gets all of them right. And it wasn't just a guess. It was because God had revealed it to him, where he would be, who he would be around, what he would be doing while he was there. All of it. All the specific details. The problem, though, was that there was already a king sitting on the throne of Israel. King Jehoram was still alive. Now, at this time, he was recovering from being wounded in battle against the Syrians, which we find out at the end of chapter 8. But he's still alive, and he's still the king. Now, if word got out that someone else has been anointed king in his kingdom, he's not going to be pleased. And he would have sought to kill not only the one that's been anointed, but also the young prophet who went ahead and anointed this man. So this was no easy mission for this young prophet. It's not as if the, the throne is vacant and they just need to find someone to occupy it. He's going to anoint a man who is going to take away the throne from someone who is currently living. So this was no easy task, but he's called and he's going to demonstrate incredible loyalty nonetheless. And he's seriously putting himself in harm's way should word get out what he was doing. So this young man was definitely being stretched with this mission. But isn't that the way that the Lord works with each and every one of us? The Lord will stretch us. And sometimes it's quite a bit of stretching. But he'll stretch us so that we are made stronger for future ministry. He'll cause us to go out of our comfort zones and in some instances, he may even put us directly in harm's way so that we might learn to fully trust in him in whatever he has called us to do. You see this firsthand in the life and ministry of just the prophet Elisha. How many times is he put in harm's way? We lose count. 
And now he's basically teaching the same thing to this young prophet, preparing him for what he's going to see outside of the classroom in the real life experiences of a prophet. God may do this, but he's doing this to cause us to depend and trust on him with whatever he's called us to do. Now, this is one of the hardest tests that we will ever face as human beings where we're forced to give ourselves completely over to God, trusting that he will sustain, that he will provide, that he will protect because we've left ourselves completely vulnerable in front of our enemies. When we as servants of God realize that it's not about us to pick and choose the tasks that we are to do for Christ, but to just be a servant when he calls and where he calls, our lives will then get a whole lot easier. We'll stop questioning God's plans. We'll stop questioning God's methods. We'll stop doubting God's ability. And we'll just do as we're told to do, trusting that if God has called us for some specific service, that God is also going to prepare us, and he's also going before us to prepare the way that we are going to. What the Lord is looking for from us is simple obedience. Just do as you're told. In some instances, this is easy. And in others, it is very difficult. You see, the Lord is is calling us to complete obedience. No matter what it may involve and no matter how much we may have to sacrifice in the process. And only be rendering uh, God this complete obedience will we be truly rewarded in the next life when we hear those blessed words spoken to us from Christ himself. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. I fear that we don't think about this enough. The Bible makes it clear that those are the words that Christ will speak to us one day if we're faithful in serving him here. But how many of us are actually living with that as our focus? To please God. How many of us are motivated to serve Christ out of a desire to hear him say those blessed words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. We're, I think in in many ways, I feel like based on how we're living our lives, we're mostly living for ourselves, but still hoping that Christ will somehow be pleased with us. Maybe we'll have one foot in service for Christ and then one foot pleasing ourselves, and we say, well, he's got to be, you know, pleased with, with that, right? We're doing things our own way, acting as if what God has told us to do is merely a suggestion. God has made it clear what pleases him. He's made it clear what you need to do in order to hear him say those blessed words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And it's very simply the way of obedience. The way of obedience to his word. He never promises that it's going to be easy, but he promises that we will be eternally blessed as a result of our complete obedience. Our service to God is all about doing things God's way. And that is exactly what we see this young prophet doing. Look again at what he's instructed to do in verse number three. It says, Then take the box of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus saith the Lord, I have anointed thee king over Israel. Then open the door and flee and tarry not. Elisha instructed him not only what he was supposed to do, but also what he was supposed to say. The young prophet was to make it unmistakably clear That he was not acting on his own, not even as an agent of Elisha, 
but under the immediate authority of God himself. Again, notice what the words say. Elisha tells him in verse number three, you say this, thus, thus saith the Lord. Not thus saith the prophet Elisha or thus saith the prophet Elijah. Thus saith the Lord. So he's acting under the immediate authority of not the prophet, but God himself when he comes to Jehu to anoint him as the next king. This is exactly as it should be for every single servant of God. We're commissioned by God himself. We're not delivering a message that we came up with on our own, nor should we be acting as an agent of any other denomination. We're servants of God, and as long as we walk in obedience to him, and as long as we proclaim his truth, we operate under the immediate authority of God himself. And we should conduct ourselves in such a way so as to make that evident. To make it evident that God is our authority, that God is our daily source of strength. And only when we're walking in complete obedience to Christ will he be honored. And only then will we as his servants preserve our dignity and speak with God's authority. Then is when we'll hear those blessed words one day spoken to us. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And notice that Elisha instructed this young what, what he instructed this young prophet to do, what to say, and how long he should even stay. Look again at what it says there in verse 3. It says, Then take the box of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus saith the Lord, I have anointed thee king over Israel. He says, Once you've done that, then open the door and flee and tarry not. There is a tendency for believers to do some service for Christ, but then to linger around maybe thinking that we need to receive some sort of a compliment for the work that we've done. Many believers are motivated to serve out of a desire to receive praise from men. They want recognition. They want their name to be remembered. So they'll stick around and they'll shake everyone's hands and they'll tell them that it was their honor to be around them. You ever heard people say this before? Oh, it's your honor to be around me. This is how some people are. Elisha, saving this young prophet from pride swelling up in his heart, instructed him to go and anoint, Je anoint, anoint Jehu, speak in God's authority, and then leave right away. These were their instructions. So now let's notice what the young man ended up doing. Look at what it says in verse number four. It says, so the young man, even the young man, the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead. Now I find it interesting that the Holy Spirit insists on mentioning twice in the same verse that this young prophet was young. So the young man, one, even the young man, this prophet, twice. It's almost as if to tell us this guy was really young. There's something to be said about the difference in how an older Christian might serve Christ compared to a younger Christian. And it's not always true, but there can be a tendency for an older Christian to overanalyze certain situations where some younger Christians may pay less attention to the situation and just do what they're told to do. Ask two different people to clean the church, and one might respond by going and grabbing the vacuum cleaner and start vacuuming in the sanctuary, while the other might hesitate and say, well, isn't that so-and-so's week to clean the church? Hey, all I asked was to just go and clean the church. Why are we debating? Why are we arguing? Why are we saying, well, it's this person's job to do it this week? Just go and do as you're told to do. Is this not how we are sometimes? The one to hesitate, the one to question, the one to overanalyze the request is typically the one who's been around longer. Well, we have, we have a, a chart out there that says whose week it is. 
So, you know, Pastor, I understand you're telling me to go and clean the church, but it's really someone else's responsibility to do, so I'm just going to wait for them to do what they should be doing already. And I believe the Holy Spirit was emphasizing this young prophet's age to show how he was not influenced by anything else, by any of the peripherals, other than what he was told to do by the prophet himself. He received instructions from Elisha, and then he goes to exactly the place where he's told to go. He went to Ramoth Gilead, and he did what he was told to do. He didn't question Elisha as to whether he was ready for this task. He didn't say, are you sure you chose the right guy? Because, you know, our grades show that this guy's doing better in the class than I am, so don't you think he would have been better served to be out in the field that's supposed to me? He doesn't do any of that. Take the box of oil. Okay, where am I going? Ramoth Gilead. All right, who am I anointing? Jehu, here's where he is. All right, this is what I need to say. All right, can I go now? Done. He goes. He goes and he does as he's told to do. He received instructions and he went. He didn't insist that someone else should be called upon to do this. He didn't ask for an easier task. He just did as he was told. In Ephesians chapter 3 and verses 7 and 8, the Apostle Paul talks about his own personal calling into the ministry and how unworthy he was to do what God had called him to do. And notice what he says in these two verses, first, or in, in, in Ephesians 3, 7 and 8. He says, Whereof I was made a minister, according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. He says, I wasn't equipped. I wasn't worthy of this. And God chose me. He just plucked me out and said, you're going to go and do this. And he says, the grace of God just bounded in me to equip me to do what I was called to do. When Paul was first called to go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles, he knew he was unworthy. He knew he shouldn't have been God's servant. He shouldn't have been qualified. But he didn't allow the thought to, that thought to prevent him from doing what God had called him to do. He didn't look back on God and say, God, you got the wrong guy. He trusted that the same God who had called him to the task would also equip him for what needed to be done. And we're seeing the same mindset in this young prophet here in 2 Kings chapter 9 who never questions Elisha, rather responds to him in complete and immediate obedience. The young man was properly equipped by Elisha when he was given the box of oil in verse number 3. And he says, then take the box of oil. So he's handing it to him. Here's what you need to go and anoint him. And then he trusted God for the rest. And then notice what we read in verses 5 and 6. 2 Kings 9, verses 5 and 6. It says, When he came, behold, the captains of the host were sitting. Oh, what a coincidence that is, that Elisha said he would be sitting. And he said, I have an errand to thee, O captain. And Jehu said, Unto which of all, of all, of all us? And he said, To thee, O captain. And he arose and went into the house, and he poured the oil on his head and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I have anointed thee, king over the people of the Lord, even over Israel. So the young man, the young prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead and found Jehu just where Elisha said he would be found. His first word to Jehu is behold, which had a threefold force to it. First, he was calling attention to the accuracy of Elisha's prediction about what he would be doing, where he would be found. And second, he was emphasizing the severity of the occasion. 
And then third, in light of what would follow, he was showing how the gracious hand of God was orchestrating all of these events in light, uh, uh, in light of what would happen and to show Jehu that God was doing this without giving him an opportunity to complain or see anything else. Now, in that, we see how much God delights to honor those who honor him and show himself strong on the behalf of those whose heart is stayed on him. When we look at verses 7 through 10 here in 2 Kings chapter 9, we see that the young prophet must have been told more by the prophet Elisha and how he faithfully delivers the message and the entire message to Jehu. And notice what the rest of the message is in verses 7 through 10. It says, And thou shalt smite the house of Ahab thy master. So again, this goes all the way back to 1 Kings chapter 19 and verses 15 and 16. The message that was originally delivered to Elijah. He says, Thou shalt smite the, the house of Ahab thy master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab him that pisseth against the wall, and him that is shut up and left in Israel. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha the son of Ahijah. And the dogs shall eat Jezebel in the portion of Jezreel, and there shall be none to bury her. And he opened the door and fled. And the fact that this young prophet delivers this message with such confidence that he was indeed acting, it, it confirms to us that he was indeed acting under the authority of God. He tells Jehu that God is going to use him to be God's battle axe bringing judgment to the house of Ahab, who again, years prior, had received this exact same word of judgment from the prophet Elijah. The day of reckoning had finally come, which, remember, God had delayed due to Ahab's mournful response. Now, the remainder of 2 Kings chapter 9 shows us that Jehu would end up doing as he was instructed to do, and every part of God's word of judgment spoken to Ahab would indeed come true. We're told in Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse number 3. Habakkuk 2 verse 3, the Bible says, For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. And this was exactly the case with the judgment that God promised to bring upon the house of Ahab. It didn't come right away. But it did eventually come because God's words never fall to the ground. When you look at the end of verse number 10 there, we see the young prophet once again doing as he was told to do. Look at the very last sentence there in verse number 10. It says, And he opened the door and fled. He took the box of oil. He went to Ramoth Gilead. He met with Jehu. He anointed Jehu to be king over Israel. He gave him the word of the Lord. And then he opened the door and he fled. He didn't wait around to celebrate with Jehu. He didn't congratulate him. He didn't come up with some sort of plan of action, how he was going to go and take out the whole house of Ahab. He just got out of there as quickly as he could because that is what he was instructed to do. He knew that he was just a messenger, so he didn't stick around. Most certainly, if he would have tarried, Jehu would have thanked him. They would have celebrated. He would have you know, showed him all sorts of appreciation. And there's a valuable lesson for us to learn in this. When God calls us to do something, we must do it exactly as he has instructed. Don't try to tweak God's plan or insist that you can do something better to alter it. 
Our responsibility is to respond in obedience to God's word, accepting that it is entirely accurate and completely for our benefit. It is not a suggestion for us to apply when we feel that it's appropriate, when we feel that it's necessary for us to, to live by every single day. It is what is supposed to be for us. People may think we're crazy for our allegiance and our obedience to Christ. As some probably thought that this young prophet was, based on what we see in the very next verse, which we didn't even look at. But if you read verse 11, people think he's some crazy person that just came through. But our loyalty, our loyalty should always rest in Christ and in the word that he has given. What difference does it make if we're ridiculed by the world, but yet rewarded by our Savior? Training day came for this young prophet. And based on, he, on how he responded, he was ready to be an instrument in the master's hands. May we also be ready to answer God's call on our lives in the same simple and complete obedience. Would you bow with me in prayer this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your house, to be under your teaching, to learn from you. I pray, Lord, that the lesson that we're able to take away here this morning is the importance to trust your word and to obey. Lord, you have made it so clear what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to live. And unfortunately, Lord, I know that we've taken liberties with this. And we have more of a half-hearted obedience, which honestly can't even be qualified as obedience at all. Because if it isn't complete obedience, then it isn't obedience at all. Lord, help us to, to see the error of our way and to see the importance of giving ourselves wholly over to you. Trusting that what you have commanded is everything that we need, everything that we need to follow, everything that is going to be beneficial for us. Lord, I know that this requires a lot of work on our part, but I pray that you would help us to do and to make the necessary sacrifices and the changes that need to be made in our lives. Lord, to remove obstacles and distractions that are drawing our attention away from you. Lord, so that we might be faithful servants of you who would one day hear those blessed words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. We ask for the Holy Spirit's help in this, for we know how much we need it. In Christ's name we pray, amen.